Hello to all of you. Uh, thank you so much for joining today's IFPRI policy seminar on the important topic of globalization and food security. Uh, we will look at several decades of research and developments on this important and still much debated topic. Uh, we are also here to celebrate the research of Antoine Bouet, who has spent many years at IFPRI and done a lot of the really innovative thinking on this topic uh, during his time at IFPRI. He has recently assumed the position uh, as the director of CEPI, Centre d'études prospectives et d'information internationale, which is the leading French center for research and expertise on the world economy, where he will no doubt carry on his important work and we hope continue to engage with us at IFPRI and, and others uh, around the world. So we all know that uh, the Uruguay Round Agreement on Agriculture was a huge development because it brought for the first time the agricultural sector under the scope of multilateral trade rules. And yet it left a lot of things that still had to be uh, further reformed. Further reform was built into the Uruguay Round Agreement, but suffice it to say that that has been difficult going. The Doha Round was launched in 2001. And regardless of whether we think the Doha round has died or not, or whether it might be on life support, the negotiations are moving slowly and are in, in part, I think, around these many questions around globalization and food security. In addition, I think, to some other considerations are perhaps uh, stalled or, or simply not making great uh, progress. So, um, it's just to say that the discussions around globalization and food security continue. It is by no means a settled topic. So today, uh, fasten your seatbelt. We're going to look at several decades of research and think about how it may have shaped the thinking of policymakers and negotiators. We have a fantastic set of panelists, and we very much look forward to your uh, questions. Please do send us your questions. Um, because we will get to Q&A after our presenters speak. You can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. It's now my pleasure to turn over to IFPRI's Director General, Yo Swinnen, for some opening remarks. Thank you very much, Charlotte, and uh, welcome everybody. I'm very delighted to welcome you here at this webinar. We are, as Charlotte already explained very well, we're both celebrating Antoine's extensive career at IFPRI and also looking into the issues he has worked on so much uh, over his career, the relationship between trade, globalization, food security, and along with the evolution and the new factors which have come into play. Let me start by congratulating Antoine for his 17 plus years at IFPRI. It's a very long time. A lot of things have happened since, both in the real world, in the trade world, but also in terms of methods, data, uh, theory and, and trade analysis. And uh, so we'll reflect on, on all of that today, I think, in our discussion. So um, while we reg regret to see Antoine go, I also want to congratulate him with his appointment to a very prestigious and influential new position as CIPI director in, in Paris. Uh, we have a great lineup today, as uh, Charlotte already mentioned. Um, there could also be hardly a more appropriate time to, time to talk about trade issues. Uh, you know, I'm sure all of you know how uh, trade has been influenced by the Ukraine crisis and, of course, already before by COVID-19 and some of the events preceding that. Uh, it is particularly difficult today 
to discuss this because there's an interaction with a number of factors, I think, uh, related to, for example, the financial crisis, the fiscal crisis, geopolitics in the world, all of which have important uh, aspects or influences and relationship with, with trade. And the public debate that we have during the crisis and, and today, it illustrates, I think, the, the complex nature of the relationship between food security and trade. For example, in developing countries, uh, trade has allowed the access to food and uh, the diversity of the food supply in many uh, developing countries also allowed low and middle income countries, several of them to benefit from exports, from income gained from that, access to a foreign currency. But at the same time, it's also uh, created a dependency on world markets for food imports and access to food. And this particularly during the Ukraine crisis has come to the forefront again. Uh, for example, countries in, in North Africa, like Egypt, Libya, Sudan, etc., are highly dependent on, on wheat imports, Okay, much of which came from, us, uh, from the countries affected by the war and therefore is affecting their food supplies. At the same time, what we see is that there's still a lot of trade barriers around, and this is limiting a developing countries' integration in regional trade and international trade. And in particularly in Africa, there's still a lot of uh, structural problems and policy problems related to that. I think with such complexity and the intensity of the public debate today, it's even more important than, than ever to come up with evidence, to come up with insights, which are based on careful analysis, on sound uh, scientific methods and good data, and of course, focusing on policy relevant questions. Antoine has made major contributions in this field over the years, and I think particularly his work on, on Africa and the analysis of trade agreements, uh, his major contributions in bringing better data to how much trade is actually taking place in, in Africa, and that official statistics are obviously strongly underestimating these, uh, the actual trade taking place, impact of non-tariff barriers, export restrictions, and of course, the specific structural uh, challenges faced by the African continent. All these are really important contributions. They have been very well, I think, also reflected in his contributions to the African Agricultural Trade Monitoring Report, annually uh, published <clears throat> first by IFPRI, now jointly with Academia 2063, which is really making a very important contribution in this field. Let me leave it at that. And again, uh, <clears throat> thank you all for being here with us, the speakers, uh, you in, in the audience, and congratulating uh, and thanking Antoine again for all his contributions to the trade debate and to our institution. Back over to you, Charlotte. Thank you very much, Yo. Uh, we now turn to David Laborde, who has been a colleague and I think a friend to Antoine for many, many years. And he's really the perfect person to take us through these two decades of research uh, and look you know, to take a little bit of a deeper dive in the evolution of, uh, of the debate on global food security and globalization. And I imagine you'll touch both on the multilateral agenda, but perhaps also on, on regional and bilateral trade agreements and, and, and other topics. Over to you, David. We need you to unmute. Thanks everyone for being here. Uh, and yes, I'm going to try to pack uh, 20 years in less than 10 minutes. Um, and I'm going to use Antoine Research really as a way to see how some of the method and debate have actually evolved over the last uh, 20 years. Even if just, you know, listening to the debate sometime, we, we, we seems to be in a kind of infinite loop, asking the same question and facing the same uh, uh, challenges. So, uh, first, um, 
I, I just want to say that, yes, I'm going to use uh, Antoine's, uh, an Antoine contribution to the free research as uh, really um, my main uh, narrative. Uh, but if pre-research on globalization and food security has not started with Antoine, and hopefully will not end with Antoine, uh, and uh, covers other works, uh, but today uh, the picture honestly is like that. So I'm not going to talk about everything that Antoine has done in terms of research because he has done research that go beyond the question of, of food security and globalization. And as I've said, uh, if pre uh, other works are important, but still, as you are going to see, uh, the bulk of, of uh, the two um circles or overlap and uh that's what i'm going to talk about so um now we talk about uh, how we do research and i'm going to talk after about the content but i think and antoine is a very good example of this uh we need always to do a, a job and a work on data because uh, we, we still believe that economists are scientists so the first thing they need to do is to measure the phenomenon they want to study uh, and that's very important, but you also need to be guided by, by theory. And, and Antoine has done a lot of theoretical uh, uh, work, actually. But if you want to guide policymaking at one point, you need to uh, put numbers on, on policy option. And that's what models are useful, both a partially career model and general career model. And Antoine has contributed to both, but in particular, the, the Miragradep model. And you need also to understand that decisions uh, are the result of a process. Uh, with different uh, group interest negotiation strategy both within country and across countries and obviously Antoine is really aware of, of that uh, from the beginning uh, of his career in particular looking at some aspect uh, linked to retaliation when we think about trade policy you know and that's going to be even more important for the recent years last but not least uh, all of this can be very interesting for a researcher but if we don't communicate to the new generation or if we don't explain to policymakers uh, what we are doing that that's actually not very useful and he also Antoine has done a lot of capacity building uh, around the world during his 70 years uh, at IFPRI in Africa in Latin America in uh, Asia and of course his contribution in the AgroDep network uh, are, are pretty important so now let's talk about contents I will say what are the research questions that Antoine has looked at and if we start in 2005, so we are uh, at the beginning of the Doha round, we start to see some friction. We know that the regular round has been a kind of a bittersweet uh, outcome for a number of, of uh, countries. And it's pretty important to say that liberalization is not a simple story. We don't just have a bunch of winners. We have actually winners and losers within country, across countries. And here I just point you know, to two a uh, question raised by Antoine at the time is, first, when we talk about trade liberalization and agricultural trade liberalization, we will see contrasting fortune among developing countries. And the idea that all developing countries are not the same is important. But also one of the questions for the negotiation at the time, so do we want to be very ambitious and so trying to get potentially a lot of gain, but also a lot of pain, but at least to get political momentum? Or do we want to just target longing fruits and be conservative. And this type of choices have remained pretty, uh, pretty important. Now, few years after, um, and dealing with this process, it was pretty important to make clear that details matter. You know, liberalization is not a simple story, and to understand it, we need details. And a couple of, of, of papers here I am pointing to, so 
after you will have the presentation, you can try to read all the Antoine's career uh, paper by paper. Uh, but on one hand, there is one um, that is about really better measurement of trade policy and tariffs um, with a product that was called MacMap uh, at the time and continue and its contribution to the uh, uh, JTAP network about making sure we talk about the actual trade policies, because that's what also negotiators care about. It's not just, a, I would say, a fiction of or a simplification of reality, detail matters. But at the same time, we were using a lot of models, in particular computable general program model, and for part of the audience, they have been seen as black box. So what Antoine has explained is, they are not black box. We can understand where the different numbers come from. You just need to make a bit of effort, but actually they are very transparent. But here also, we need to better communicate, to better explain, and it is a work uh, he has done. So all of this can make the negotiation more concrete, more transparent, but actually more transparency in negotiation is not always <laughs> uh, something that all negotiators like. Now, starting after the first decade, it was clear that there is a lot of clouds on the horizon. So here I'm putting some years, but just think that some of the paper and the publication date actually represent uh, an initiative and some work that I started many years before. Uh, so it's not like if, uh, even if Antoine is very bright, he's not a wake up in the morning and have a paper after one week. Some of his data work actually can take years. Some of his building model also are long run investments. Um, and for the cloud on the horizon, I will just raise two types of, of one. One is clearly the door around was, um, I would say, failing after 2008. Uh, but what is the alternative to a multilateral liberalization? What it means to stop delivering on trade liberalization? And that's the type of, of work that was done in this paper, assessing the potential cost of a failure around, uh, where you have both, um, I would say, game theory and, and general equilibrium to show this. But this work was started actually in 2004, when just Antoine was also starting at IFPRI. Uh, and at the time, some negotiators were saying, don't publish it, you are too pessimistic, you are going to make the world a worse place. Um, but at least things were discussed. And then the rising question of export taxation. Because also, I think, leaving the rig around, and in particular, if you think about the beginning of the 2000s, the agricultural world prices were very low, at a kind of all-time low. So people were saying, we still have a world where people want to export more, there are a lot of subsidies, prices are low, and that's a big problem. But step by step, we have realized that, no, having low prices is not the only problem that the world faces. We also have problems when prices go up, uh, especially when they go up for a short period of time, and then we start to see policies, sometimes triggered by panic, that amplify it. But as 2010, Antoine uh, was uh, looking at this, and the pleasure to, to work with uh, him on, on that, even before the question of export taxation become very uh, sexy. And at the same time, it was clear that there is other policies that impact global markets that are not on the negotiation table yet. First, some shock that can impact the demand uh, within country, like the biofuel mandate with both uh, impact on food security with environmental concern, uh, but also the adoption of new technology. Um, so here I give an example of a paper that Antoine did with uh, Graham Greer on GM cotton, but also on GM rice. So, you know, on one hand, there is a trade dimension because that's all the non-tariff barriers, but that's also important choices, I mean, for society regarding the, these issues. Now, what is the last part? So the last part is 
before entering in it. If you want a summary of the first 15 years, you have this excellent book, uh, published at IFPRI, available for free on our website. That summarizes uh, actually, I will say, 15 years of, of research. And he also had the pleasure to edit it with, with Antoine. Now, for the last segment, uh, it's a bit more uh, kind of, of sad, because on one hand, uh, obviously, mutualism has not delivered too much in the last four years, even if I mean the last ministerial at least has brought some uh, concrete output. Uh, so that, I mean, that's good. Uh, the world also has been second by COVID-19 and uh, the current uh, invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia, as uh, you has pointed before. So the threat or the discussion around globalization have been maybe at a very high level. And at the same time, we have seen uh, populist policymakers using these fears or worries uh, for their own uh, domestic agenda. And so what are the alternatives? On one hand, we still see a growing number of discussion on bilateralism, but sometimes, you know, especially when it's going to involve large player and small player, like the economic partnership agreement between the EU and some African countries, there is obviously questions um, about how to deliver a fair deal when you are in a very asymmetric situation. But also we have seen rising trade wars and confrontation between trade blocks uh, and the current situation about is the future of trade about trading with friends uh, back on, on the table. Now, to conclude, um, I just want to say that also uh, there is a big debate and discussion regarding Africa. And obviously, Africa today is a continent where food insecurity uh, is the highest. And there is no point to talk about uh, global trade and food security if trade doesn't deliver on food security for Africa, not only promises, but actually deliver. And on this, um, Antoine has started to work on this question, I mean, uh, also a long time ago, understanding how much Africa is trading with itself and with the rest of the world, and why it's not trading enough. This goal of continuing to measure the phenomenon is something very important for Antoine, and after 10 years, he continued to always revisit that. And in particular, the question of cross-border trade uh, an informal cross-border trade in Africa is key. And here there is a lot of ongoing research also leading to change practices by statistical offices that is important to really know what we are talking about because uh, at the beginning of this continental free trade area that is taking place in Africa, we need to know what was traded before, how much is going to be traded tomorrow, and if trade also is a way to bring more formality to informal sector to deal with a better livelihood for people, but also better food safety, for instance. And a lot of this work is available through the agricultural trade monitor that Antoine is an editor for the last uh, four um, edition, and you can find also. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, for that tour de force uh, over, over these uh, last years of, uh, of work on, on trade and food security. We now turn to a very distinguished uh, panel to provide their reflections, I, I think, on this overview. And our first speaker is, is Tom Hertel, who serves as the Distinguished Professor of Agricultural Economics at uh, Purdue University. And uh, Tom, our question to you in light of, uh, of this large uh, um, set of work that uh, David has just uh, touched on, in your view, how has the landscape of research evolved over the last 20 years to address the debate on globalization and food security? 
Okay, thanks, Charlotte. It's a pleasure and honor to be here uh, today to celebrate Antoine's career. I think it really is important to mark these occasions. And um, his work has had a major impact on the way in which analysis of these issues are uh, analyses are undertaken, as well as the way we think about trade agreements. Um, so I happen to have had the good fortune of observing Antoine from early in his career. I'm going to start in uh, 2001, when, even before he joined IFPRI, when he and his colleagues at CEPI produced the very first version of an important database and a framework for analysis of protection in uh, trade protection and it's the market access maps that we heard about from David already. This was a public good. It was something done um, <clears throat> to allow many people around the world to analyze trade policies in a realistic way. Uh, it brought three important dimensions of the problem to the community of scholars working on trade agreements. It allowed, first of all, it sought to integrate into one analytical database all the major trade policy instruments, not just tariffs, but also anti-dumping duties, tariff rate quotas, other things. Uh, there was a lot of complexity here. Um, and in this complexity came uh, important uh, new, uh, a rapid growth in preferential protection. Um, so opportunities for, uh, for example, other countries to access uh, the US and EU markets in a preferred way. This resulted in important erosion of critical preferences for many developing countries, an issue that Antoine worked on. And a third element of this database, perhaps the most important, was the policy relevant resolution. Uh, trade policy is negotiated at the level of thousands of individual tariff lines, not at the level eco economic analysis is typically done. And capturing this in a database and analysis was really a critical uh, element and important step forward for the global trade modeling community. So um, as uh, someone involved in the leadership of the GTAP network at this point, I was very interested in this. And indeed, um, about the time uh, Antoine joined IFPRI, um, this MAC map became the backbone of the GTAP database when it came to trade policy, the way everyone in the world was analyzing trade policy. So this was very important. Antoine was recognized in 2010 with the Alan A. Powell Award for Outstanding Service to the Consortium because of this and related work. And of course, as David has already said, Antoine was also involved in developing models to use this kind of information, the Mirage model, the Miragradep model, um, and he made these important contributions. Uh, David alluded to some of the papers already, um, very much around the Doha round um, and its impact on developing countries, uh, detailed focus on agriculture, but also comparing across the, uh, the board with non-agriculture, very important to get that comparative perspective. Um, how would low-income countries be affected by the Uruguay round? As David pointed out, um, transparency is not always beneficial for negotiators. In some ways, I think all of this transparency and analysis um, made it very hard for them to conclude the Doha round because it became clear that in many cases, not a lot was being offered. And perhaps the most beneficial pieces for developing countries were being omitted from the reforms. Um, and that was particularly problematic. Um, I thought his work with um, David on the potential cost of a failed Doha round was uh, important to highlight uh, what was really on the table here as we, um, we really failed to conclude 
that round. Um, these seven papers that I've just noted uh, have been cited more than a thousand times in the literature and proved very influential in policy discussions. Um, Antoine was recognized as a GTEP Research Fellow in 2005, again in 2016, and his work has been twice recognized by the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association for outstanding communication. So not only did he do good research, but he managed to communicate it to the people who, uh, who really needed to hear this. Um, one thing that's very clear in my mind, conducting this type of very sophisticated global economic analysis while delivering policy relevant insights really requires a unique type of human capital. There aren't many people in the world who can do this. And so normally the departure of someone like Antoine from IFPRI would be a cause for great concern on my part, perhaps Yo Swinon's part and others. But an important contribution, as David highlighted, of Antoine Bouet over the course of his career has been his ability to identify and groom talent. And of course, one of those talents, we've already heard from him in 2008, I found myself serving on the dissertation defense um, chaired by Antoine in which David Laborde was granted a PhD you know, with special distinction. So. Um, not surprisingly, um, Antoine pulled David to IFPRI where he's doing this uh, excellent work. They've collaborated a lot. And I think trade policy analysis at IFPRI is going to be in able hands even with Antoine's departure. Um, of particular interest to me in terms of the direction things are going now, and IFPRI's work is really mirroring this, is moving in the direction of broadening uh, the analysis of trade policy to look at the interplay with a range of sustainable development goals, poverty reduction, nutrition improvement, reductions in environmental degradation, protecting biodiversity. All of these are fundamentally related to trade. Trade conveys global drivers to these local communities where these um, where poverty, nutrition, biodiversity are at risk. Um, it could be population growth on the other side of the uh, of the uh, of the world, or income growth elsewhere. Technology changes. Trade conveys these global changes to local communities. Um, and that's a very important element of this. So of course, the way those local communities respond to these stresses uh, of, um, is conveyed then outside and, and beyond that region, beyond that country to the rest of the world through spillovers. And these are also trade mediated. So there's tremendous interest today on the part of whether it's hydrologists, ecologists, geographers, climate scientists, um, sociologists, political scientists, they're all interested in trade now. And we need to find ways to connect with them. And fortunately, this is happening. Something that I'm personally championing, the GlassNet is an attempt to, to do that. And if PRI is very much engaged in that kind of activity, connecting economists to these other disciplines to address a broader range of topics and sustainable development goals. We think of it as global to local to global, these connections that occur. So um, with that, I think I'll conclude, but I think this is uh, the way forward um, to be connecting more across disciplines, across and addressing a wider range of uh, the sustainable development goals. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you very much, Tom, also for addressing your vision of how we take this the topic forward by really taking a more of a multidisciplinary approach to, to the question of trade and, and food security, as well as the, the other SDG related uh, points that, that you made in that regard. Um, let me just uh, 
make a reminder that we are eager to hear from our audience. So please do submit your questions. Um, you can do so on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Our next uh, speaker is Robert Koopman. He is the Hearst Senior Professor Lecturer at the School of International Service here at American University. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we'd like you to answer a question as well. And, and it's really, we're interested in your view on whether you think economists have actually been successful in terms of informing policymakers. Have their research findings and their recommendations helped in your view to shape the decision-making process? Well, thank you, Charlotte. And uh, it's my pleasure to join in in this celebration of Antoine's uh, contributions and uh, very much congratulate him on his new appointment uh, to SEPI. Um, so yes, I, I would have to say in my experience uh, working with the US government and also recently at the World Trade Organization that economists make very important contributions um, in terms of it helping to inform policymakers of the potential opportunity costs of their decisions. Um, it's a mistake to think that the economic analysis is the main driver of their decisions. Um, but I would say, I think it's contributed in ways that have helped improve some of the policy decisions that have been, um, been reached. But probably more importantly, it's mitigated some of the bad policy decisions that could have been reached. Um, so by putting the economic perspective before them, um, it makes them address the potential trade-offs, as I said, opportunity costs that uh, their decisions are likely to drive through the economy. Um, you know, my personal experience has been going up to the hill and trying to explain to uh, U.S. Congress people that. Uh, trade deficits are not necessarily a sign of economic success, right? That's just a data, just factual, not even economic modeling. And it disagreed with their talking points that they had been given by lobbyists. And, you know, they were uh, confronted with the, the facts uh, that we economists put together. Arguments around growing trade deficits with China, trying to show that, uh, you know, really China was crowding out uh, trade with other Asian countries, not necessarily expanding overall Asia share with trade with the US. And then you put into an economic model. So that's data, that's economic data, and that's using economic theory to organize our thinking. Um, as Tom pointed out, and uh, as, as did David, having very, very granular data on the policies that are being negotiated is very important. And when we were working closely with USTR and helping to prepare their negotiators for going into negotiations, we'd often use partial equilibrium models to try to illustrate what the potential trade-offs were in terms of uh, the market access commitments. But within the policy community, there was often a debate as who's going to give um, and how much is going to give. Um, in the negotiation, which I found very interesting. So it wasn't just a negotiation with, with the other side, it was a negotiation within the building and within the negotiators as to what the political trade-offs were likely to be. Um, and we were often countering uh, private sector or industry association analysis, which I would describe often as magical. It would, um, 
You know, they would um, say that there'd be these magical gains from increased market access, or there'd be this magical damage from giving uh, increased market access to the U.S. market. So having that kind of discipline around our thinking and being able to say, well, look, when you compare this to these policy changes and you take account of these other factors that were going on, the analysis seems to uh, be pretty accurate. Um, reason I, I like to tell my students that economists are generally, uh, <laughs> economists are precisely wrong, um, but generally correct. Uh, so we rarely get it exactly right, but um, we often get it moving in the right direction. Now, changing topics a little bit in terms of how economics can inform the debate. Uh, when uh, Director G General Ngozi arrived at the WTO, she had a very, very strong interest in some of the um, preamble language to the Marrakesh Agreement that emphasized the role of trade in sustainable development. And so she very much wanted us to build out that kind of analysis and that capability and to be looking at the at the um, the world of trade in a more holistic picture. Now we'd already had to deal a lot with the sort of the political economy, the political science side. There's a lot of legal aspects around the agreements, but she was very very interested in these questions of how does trade help accomplish the SDGs? How does trade help address food security issues? In the COVID-19 case, she saw very quickly that members were raising export restrictions and other member countries were complaining that they weren't able to get access. Um, and you know, being able to draw upon the, you know, the rich literature around the impact of export restrictions on food prices, which Antoine contributed to, um, really helped center her and you know, give her ammunition to have very effective conversations with other WTO members, most of whom um, had these measures in place but denied that they had measures in place, right? Um, but you could then look at the trade data and see that the, 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 uh, the vaccines weren't leaving the countries. Um, I'll stop there. I, I think um, uh, you know, to conclude, it's really important that economists generate this analysis um, we're often, you know, looking at a particular scenario, and that may not be the scenario that plays out in the real world. There's lots of elements, uh, the sociology that Tom was mentioning, uh, the political aspects that we don't necessarily incorporate into our models. And I think that's okay. We're not trying to model everything. What we're trying to do is illustrate um, what the core economic forces are likely to um, to drive for outcomes in the in the global economy. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate Antoine. Back thank to you, Charlotte. Thank you very much. Really very interesting remarks, Robert. And I, I see a new research project in the works here. We need to estimate all of the bad policy options that have been averted through economic analysis. And then we can really talk about the the impact uh, of this work in a in 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 a a better way. So fascinating um, uh, set of insights there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we now turn to Sophia Murphy. She serves as the executive director for the Institute of Agriculture and, and Trade Policy. And I think Sophia is, is, is going to question a little bit the, the limits perhaps of, uh, of economics analysis. So Sophia, Sophia, it would be great for you to touch on 
whether you believe that economic analysis needs to adjust and perhaps take some non-economics related elements into consideration in order to truly remain relevant in the public debate around food security and globalization. Thank you, Charlotte. And let me add my thanks and congratulations to Antoine. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. I think the first time I was invited to speak to IFPRI, Paraprinstrup Anderson was handing off to Joachim von Braun. So it's been a long time. I really appreciate the way that IFPRI opens the doors to, to a heterodox debate. Um, and I guess, I guess the first thing I'd say in terms of what was missing was things that I were talking about way back when, when I, when I came to IFPRI, must have been around 2000 or just after 2002, around this question of corporate concentration. And, and so I, I do think this is an economic issue for economists to grapple with, of course, many do. But in the trade analysis, it's always been quite difficult to work that into the impact. And I, and I think it then links to, to what I wanted to say in these few minutes today around this, the question of the role of the state. And I, and I think the, the sort of assumption in a lot of the economics that has guided our trade that the state is the problem to overcome and, and not really, well, there's lots to be said about it. Plenty of distortions come from state actions. Plenty of government behavior doesn't reflect our best economic ideals. I think that there are other sources of distortion and that was something that was missed in the assumptions that informed the Uruguay round. But also I think that the assessment of where risk would come from, perhaps underestimated the role the state would need to play in order to mitigate some risk. And so um, whether we allowed the right tools, we, we had a set of disciplines in the Uruguay round on what would be disciplined and what would be left. We didn't implement those disciplines necessarily all that well, United States first and foremost. But um, at the same time, I think we maybe underestimated what developing countries needed. And I would just say, I really do appreciate that long body of work David was presenting and that um, Antoine has also grappled with to go to countries and see what they're actually working with in terms of strengths and weaknesses and institutional capacity, and maybe understanding that market and state uh, coming together and, and needing to be able to work with them both rather than assume some out. You know, there's always assumptions that have to go out when you model. I think some of these things we need to learn how to incorporate into our thinking. I guess the other big issue, which I think economics has been grappling with all along, I think trade economics uh, surely as well, but maybe, but maybe not as easily when it comes to actually making proposals in a trade negotiation are all of these issues around distribution and, and equity and ultimately around these planetary boundaries that we're now confronting. And I think for a very long time, the assumption in trade policy has been um, realize the gains and let the state take care of the redistribution. But that same poor state that doesn't make the best trade policy decisions also doesn't make the same best redistribu redistributive decisions. And so I think that left that's left trade without the political um, interest that it could or should have. It, it, trade is very unpopular in most countries among many people, except those countries that just trade as a matter of, um, you know, island states or Canada, where I come from, you know, you've always traded and you see trade as integral, but United States, Europe, a lot of big countries, the emerging developing countries, they don't at home have political support for the kinds of trade ambition that the multilateral system espouses. And I, I think that the Uruguay round passed in a rather unique moment. And I think I think part of the paralysis since has been that states choose to sort of lean on their national sovereignty. Um, a lot of civil society disengaged. I, I think that 
um, Tom Hertel is right that there's a lot of new interest in trade, maybe from other sectors, but I would say one of trade's big problems at the moment is a withdrawal of interest from broader civil society in what trade can do. And that remains a big challenge, I think, for us that trade is more and more essential to food security. Far more countries depend now on trade to realize their food security than before. And yet there's not a, not a it's not politically integrated into, into either what countries are proposing at the WTO or into what other policies they're developing within the economy in order that trade um, can play this role of risk diminishing rather than risk enhancing um, that it should. The last thing I wanted to say um, is really just that I think food security as a concept, a theory, uh, as a practice has evolved enormously in these last you know, 17, 20 years that we're looking at. And I think there may be things to learn there about interdisciplinarity, how, how to think about complex modeling systems interactions. And I think trade has been rather left out of a lot of that work. It's, there's a lot of micro work. There's a lot of work on funding, investment, state investment, private sector investment. And I think it would be great to see trade better integrated into that work that has brought so many different components of food security um, in, into this complex systems approach. And I think it's a challenge now to see how we can get a more complex trade policy going, um, especially articulated at different levels. And again, in parting to say, I think that's the work on one that you were doing around the in, within the continent of Africa and on these regional agreements is going to be a really important part of helping to strengthen what the multilateral system might come out with. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Sophia. Um, Tom Hertel presented briefly Glassnet, uh, which was trying to bring these other disciplines into, into the trade uh, discussions. And, and maybe in just as a last question to, to, uh, to, to Robert and Sophia, maybe picking up on, on the point that all of you made that, that the trade agenda needs to be more integrated, let's say with the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda, concretely, what do you think we should be doing now, both in terms of research, but also perhaps in terms of um, communication, to take this very, very important topic forward? Maybe we start with you, Robert, and then over to you, Sophia. Okay, well, thanks. So I, I think one of the things to emphasize, and it's probably an area where economists um, are really... Uh, out on a limb, but it's the dynamic aspects of the gains from trade and technology transfer. Um, I think when you look at the Paris Agreement, there is this assumption that there'll be some sort of technological improvements that will help reduce emissions going forward. And one thing, I mean, we're going out on a limb when we do this, and many academic economists don't like it, but I think it's very useful to take some of these large applied general equilibrium models and start asking different questions, different kinds of scenarios. Now, they're not going to give us an answer, but they're going to illustrate the potential effects of different kinds of um, either innovations or technology transfer programs and help illustrate some of the maybe unexpected or unintended effects, right? So just like we learn when uh, advanced economies reduce subsidies uh, on, uh, for uh, exportable surpluses, 
uh, it has adverse effects on low-income uh, citizens in countries that were relying on those. That you know, a model helps illustrate that. It may seem obvious, but obvious it's it. it often doesn't come through until you do the analysis. I think looking at some of these more dynamic effects uh, and how trade can positively contribute, but also dive into the model results and look at some of the potentially unexpected things or what sectors might uh, then start screaming uh, unhappily about it rather than just focusing on the, on the positive results. I think that's, um, that helps inform the debate. As I said, it helps illustrate potential opportunity costs and pressure points. Um, we do need to do a better job of building in the environmental aspects of trade. Uh, there's been some great work done here recently that's helped improve the data, both from a uh, sort of an input-output perspective on emissions, but also people like Joe Shapiro sitting down and actually uh, looking at the bias, unintended bias in trade policy. You know, um, you bring start bringing in that all together, and I think we can do a better job of helping to illustrate what some of the trade-offs and potential benefits and costs are. I'll stop there. Thanks, Charlotte. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Sophia, do you want to come in with a, a brief and, and, and clear recommendation for the way forward? Well, I would just say three things. One is we're looking at the Institute. In fact, what is climate change uh, doing to the very big ag kind of engines, the five, six big powerhouse producers for export markets? I think we've under examined that idea like what in the next five to 10 15 years is going to be the wick grain market um assuming climate change no you know knowing climate change and the second one would be um the need to think about how we're going to regulate for competition so that we can actually anticipate what some of the trade market opening might bring in terms of shifts in competitive um context and the third would be what investments are needed for the transitions that we have and so I think this bringing the state back front and center and thinking more openly about different tools we have in an imperfect world um how can we help the fact that we're going to rely more on trade into the future excellent thank you to all of our panelists for for a really very interesting uh set of remarks and now uh, the time has come to hear from um, Antoine himself. Antoine, uh, we're delighted to have you with us. And we look forward now to your reflections on what this panel has been discussing, um, what you take away from your entire work that you did while at IFPRI, but also you know, uh, from your engagement uh, with, with the people here as well as your many engagements over the years on, on the topic of trade and, and food security. And let's just hear your reflections. Um, so uh, I think we're all really excited to, to hear from you at this sort of important point in your career. Over to you, Antoine. Thank you very much, Charlotte. And, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for the organizations and the participations to this, uh, to this seminar. I'm really glad to, 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 to associate my departure from IFPRI with a, a very interesting seminar on globalizations and food security, because uh, this is really a, a topic um, which has um, occupied most of my career. So um, um, I'm, I'm really glad with this, with this seminar. Um, I'm really sorry I was not able to attend the beginning of the seminar, but. We, we, I had the last minute meeting at, uh, 
um, with people who are at the high level in France and who are very uh, preoccupied with the rise of the cost of energy in, in Europe and the impact on, on, on activity, economic activity. So, uh, but, um, but I will look, of course, at the, at the recording. And, and uh, again, thank you very much. A special thanks to, to David because he, he, he organized this session. And you know, I have been working with David during uh, 17 years, plus uh, five years before IFPRI, uh, in my life before IFPRI, in our life before IFPRI. So 22 years of research. Um, and we had some fun. Uh, we had really, we, I enjoyed a lot this, uh, all this research with David, who was an amazing uh, person in terms of modeling and, and data. Um, and um, I think that the, the one of the best, uh, when I look at all the papers that I have done with uh, David, it's, I think, the, 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 the most interest, interesting paper that I enjoyed the most are uh, the papers where we mixed uh, computable general equilibrium models with game theory. And I think that it is really uh, a directions of research which is uh, very uh, interesting and, 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 and positive. I would like to say that IFPRI is a great research institute. Um, so my departure from IFPRI is um, uh, with a lot of regrets. It's not an easy decision. Um, of course, I enjoy the, the new positions and working for the French government, but it was really um, uh, difficult for me to leave IFPRI. Uh, it's a great research uh, institute, and, and the reason why, it's because if, if I look at the trade team that we had during several years, and I think it's uh, an important point concerning how economists are doing research uh, and try to be, um, uh, I mean, uh, consistent and pertinent in terms of, of uh, research, um, it's the, the trade team was the mixed. Uh, a combinations of uh, different uh, competencies. Um, uh, first, we had uh, uh, very good uh, people in terms of theory and, and modeling, of course, with, uh, with David, Valeria, uh, Fusseini, um, uh, Joe, and, and Joe Glober. And, uh, and, and we systematically tried to improve the, the data. And I think this is really important. Um, theory, model, modeling, and, and data. Uh, data is really important. And uh, in my career, I try to spend a lot of time on, on the improvement of data. This is really important. And David is a great guy in terms of uh, knowledge of trade data and tariff data. Fusseini in terms of informal trade data. Um, but I would like to add also that we also must know econometric techniques, of course, but also we cannot, uh, you know, um, uh, work in an uh, ivory tower uh, without contact with reality. And uh, what was great in, in the trade team at IFPRI was uh, we had people with uh, an in-depth knowledge of uh, agriculture, agricultural markets and the functioning and, and the details of economic agricultural policies and trade policies with David, of course, but also with Joe Glober. And I think it's really important because um, when we talk about agriculture, you know, it's a very special activity and economists have to know how to how it works agriculture because it, it's a special activity it's a special sector of, of production um, i'm not good i'm not very good in, in agricultural economics uh, so uh, 
but I, I can say that uh, David and, and, and Joe Glober uh, was a great uh, colleague. Uh, so I think to do great research, we have to, to, to get these combinations of theory, modeling, econometric techniques, uh, work on data, and, and of course, knowledge of, of the reality. Um, so what did I, I uh, learn during the, this uh, last uh, 20 years um, concerning the, 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 the influence of economics of economists in the public debate. First, I think that what is really important for economists is to try to, to give some context to their research. Um, and uh, I think it's very difficult for young researcher to do that, but I think it's really important. Uh, uh, for example, economists give some messages that can uh, appear a little bit contract contradictory or, or maybe confusing. So, for example, I remember that when I arrived at IFPRI, uh, everybody at IFPRI uh, were saying that uh, agricultural prices are too low and it's not good uh, for developing countries and it's uh, the fault of, uh, it's due to uh, uh, agricultural policies of, of uh, rich countries. And now um, people at IFPRI are saying that uh, uh, the agricultural prices are too high uh, and it's a big problem for, for, for development. And I, I would like to say that I'm a little bit embarrassed by social medias and, and in course, the, in fact, the simplifications of the conclusion of economic research. It's really important to take some time to explain the main conclusion of our research. Uh, it makes sense that to say that for um, uh, some developing countries, it's, uh, and, and for poor people, it's a problem to have a high uh, agricultural prices, and for others, it's, it's, uh, it's a benefit. So I, I would like to say, give some context to, 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 re to your research. Second, I would like to say that I, I spend um, a, uh, an important part of my career on, on data. And, on, um, and I think that it is also important to spend some time on uh, the estimations of behavioral parameters, elasticities. Um, and uh, this is not a work that is recognized by, completely by the academic community. And, and this is really a problem for the career of young researchers who try to publish in, in, uh, in the famous uh, academic journals. And I think we, we should find a way to, um, to uh, in fact, recognize that this work is very important. I spend a lot of time uh, in my career on the MacMap database, uh, six years. And uh, of course, um, it was important in my career, but uh, compared to the investment, it, it, it is a problem. And right now we are trying with Fuseini to work on, on uh, recently on informal cross-border trade to try to improve uh, the, the, the trade data in uh, Africa. It's really a big, big problem, not only for economists, of course, but also for policymakers. So we have to uh, make a substantial improvement of, of trade data in Africa. And I think that there are maybe there is not enough investment because uh, people are not well recognized for that. Uh, so 
Um, I think this is really important. Work on data, work on behavioral parameters. Even we should try to, the academic community should try to uh, give some uh, gratifications to the people who are doing that. Um, of course, most of my career was about uh, the debate, and this is uh, the topic of, of this seminar, uh, the debate about uh, international trade and food security. Uh, it's a really complex um, uh, relation. Uh, I think that there is much confusion about that. Um, for example, people do not, there are many people who do not understand what food security means. There is uh, a confusion with uh, food uh, self-sufficiency, um, and it's a big problem. I would like to, to cite very interesting research that has been made uh, recently by Stefanie Stancheva, who is doing some uh, research about uh, how people, how the population in the public debate understand economics uh, in terms of fiscality, but also in terms of international trade. Uh, and uh, and uh, she's doing also some experiments to give some uh, lessons to explain uh, how economics uh, function, how economics works. And, and the result of this research is that with very simple education, explanations of the big concept in economic, um, uh, people are changing their views about fiscality, about inequality, but also about international trade. And this is really important um, to, to, to try to continue this effort about um, uh, the, the understanding of uh, food security and the relations between international trade and food security. Of course, it's not an easy relations because um, uh, people have to understand that uh, liberalizations of trade can improve food security. But at the same time, we know that there are some tensions, in particular in, in countries where uh, the local consumption of food uh, depends uh, on uh, world markets. And when world markets are volatile, uh, and it happens very often, uh, of course, uh, there is big issues that are raised in, in the public debate. Um, so, um, and also, I would like to say that when we see some policies addressing uh, food security, like export restriction, uh, governments adopt export restrictions to uh, improve the access uh, of local uh, uh, of citizens to, to food and to decrease local prices of food. And of course, it has a, a very negative impact on, on uh, other countries and, and their food security. So of course it's a problem. And at the same time, we have even more complex relations because of uh, the environment and the climate change and the fight against uh, climate change. Uh, because of course, the, the support for biofuels um, is uh, putting pressure on, on international prices and it contributes also to, to food insecurity. So I would say that um, um, most of my career, and I think that I try to, to, to improve the content of the debates, it's about these relations between globalizations and food security, but there, there is still a lot of work to do. Um, I don't think the last remark I would, I would like to, to make is uh, the fact that I don't think that globalizations will decrease in the near future. Of course, in my mind, there is a potential for a limited redesign of global value chains. 
which will take more into account uh, geopolitical forces, uh, factors. So I think it's an important point. Um, it will not consist in a general reshoring of, of economic activities. And the reason is that we need the economic efficiency of specializations and international trade because uh, the, the cost of energy transition is already very high. And so we cannot um, uh, organize it on a self-sufficient basis. Um, so um, thank you very much. I, I quit. Uh, if pre, um, uh, I think the, the most important point is that I have very good memories. I have friends, new friends. Uh, and of course, I will continue to make some research uh, with you. Uh, I hope to do research uh, with Bob, with Sophia, with Rob, with, uh, with Tom, of course. But uh, I hope to continue research with my colleagues at IFPRI, Joe, uh, Valeria, Fuseni, and of course, David. Um, I also tried to improve my English, but, but it was... <laughs> It was not 100%. I have to confess that at the very beginning, I, uh, I was at the very beginning, I understood only maybe uh, less than 50% of the discussion. So now there is an improvement, even if with my Australian colleagues, it's still a little bit difficult. <laughs> right, thank you very much. Thanks Antoine for your presentation, which was delivered in, in perfect English. <laughs> Um, so you touched already on the big question, right? That that people are that somehow the 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 concept of food security is not really well understood, or the definition is not widely shared, and and that is really reflected in the questions that that we've received. And I'm actually going to turn to our other panelists, <clears throat> including David, to get at this question, right? So so one question is. Food security is still understood as the domestic food self-sufficiency in many countries, even in some advanced market economies. Somebody else writes, even though food has always moved globally, um, or in the context of food always having been mo moving globally, how far can we push the reliance on local foods by countries to boost food security? So could you reflect a little bit on you know, the role of domestic production versus trade? Uh, do we need one or the other? Do we need both? Um, and maybe factor into that equation now the, the, the ever closer reality of uh, climate change impacting productivity, um, perhaps not just in one region, but in the future, perhaps in multiple regions. How does that complicate this question of um, trade and, 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 and increasing domestic uh, productivity. So David, can I ask you to, to kick us off on that? Yes, it would be a pleasure. Um, and, and I'm sure that Sophia will, will uh, complement me perfectly. Um, no, I, I think that obviously um, there is this yes, association of food security and self-sufficiency that is at the end based and that's a problem on, on a kind of fake argument, meaning that what we have locally is safer or more secure. Now, if you see most of the food safety problem we have seen uh, in the last 20 years, both in advanced economy and in uh, poor economies, they are local problems. You know, you get uh, mad cow disease in Europe, the dioxin uh, chicken in Europe. So even, you know, systems that are very strong, uh, 
you can uh, have a, a local problem. And similarly, with climate change, um, you have countries that, uh, when they have a drought, are losing 30-40% of their production. That's actually much more than what the world market even collapsed. You know, we have never seen a collapse of 40% of world trade in grains, uh, at least for the last 40 years. So this feeling that, oh, because it's local, it's safer or more secure, is not actually not um, supported by fact. Now, for policymakers, it can make sense to say, what is within my border, I can control to some extent. And we have to acknowledge it. But once again, it's not like I can control the weather, you know, or I can tomorrow take the grain that are owned by farmers and distribute it for free to the rest of the population. You can do it for one year, but after you have a collapse of your uh, farming system. And, and we have seen many cases, um, you know, uh, when countries have done major land reform, uh, moving to Marxist system or, or things like this. So really this idea that local is safer or, or more secure is not supported by fact. And similarly, when you look at price volatility, price volatility on uh, local markets, typically in Africa, are much higher than what you see on world markets because there is a problem of connection. So just to say that, obviously, we need local production and global production, and it's not something that one uh, versus the other, that we also need to make sure that we assess things rationally so we don't bring, you know, any kind of, because it's foreign, I don't like it. And unfortunately, there is this gut feeling sometimes. All the other policymakers are worse than my own policymakers. We have to acknowledge that no one is perfect. And the question is how we can have institutions that make cooperation uh, real and, and to also to tackle some, some problem. I think that Sofia has raised the problem of, of competition. That's a big one because if you have a global market, but you don't have a global compet uh, competition authority, as we have in more places, here we have a problem to deal with. Um, so that, that will be my, my main uh, element. And now also what means local? You know, sometimes we, we have to wonder, is local domestic? Is local my city? Um, discussing with many policymakers, I have seen basically everything depending on where you are. So some people will say, oh, Vancouver should have a, a local food system. Actually, it has already had one, you know. But what it means, a local food system for Mumbai, you know, how you feed this amount of people. Uh, and so what are your um, borders of your local definition? And so on, you know, all the small and big cities will come with their own version. But at one point, what we want to have is, and what Antoine has said is efficiency. Now we have to be careful to not just think about economic efficiency, but also environmental efficiency in a context where everything doesn't have a prices. And I think that's where a lot of the debate will be about, you know, um, because we don't price carbon today properly in our economies. For example, we don't capture transportation costs and the um, externalities coming from uh, transportation cost. But at the same time, we don't also properly deal with the emission coming from growing tomatoes with uh, greenhouses uh, in uh, northern countries. So that I think, you know, where, where the debate should be to make sure that basically we level the playing field and that we take into account all the key externalities that are relevant for, for the food system. In the meantime, we may have to rely on second best policies um, but really, my point is, let's make sure that we look at facts and we don't bring ideology on a system where 
we have many people to uh, to feed. We need also to include to increase the quality of diets, and we need to do it in a sustainable way. If it is local, it's local. If it is coming from 2,000 miles away, it will come from 2,000 miles away. The distance is not here the criteria. Great. Uh, thanks, thanks, David. Um, Sophia, do you want to jump in on this one? I would, I would just come in to say, I basically agree that distance isn't what matters. I do think the the <clears throat> the level of governance really does matter. It's not trivial that countries control some things inside a border that they don't control out, just because there's a, a power at work there. So not that it should be the the decisive thing, but we just have to recognize it. I I think I would just say. Um, so if that politics means that countries protect themselves, and I think a lot of the trade assumptions in the WTO rules, for example, wish that away, and then we find ourselves with export, even the existing rules on the imposition of, of export bans and restrictions are not respected. So I, I do think there's a bit of a, dis, a dissonance there that we just have to understand that countries aren't quickly going to send food abroad if they've got hungry people within their border. There's an optic. They might, if they can get away with it, they might not if they can't. And just to say, I do you think the rules that we have in the Uruguay round create a lot of um, obligation on importers to accept and not a lot of pressure on exporters to provide? And I do think that imbalance has created a lot of mistrust. It means that countries do feel they have to grow their own food because they cannot count on an international market. And I think that if a country like Egypt or Lebanon was not as dependent as it is on so much import of a particular grain from a particular region handled by one or two firms, I think they would be in a better position. So I, I do think that um, wherever it comes from, it could be a regional agreement, Resogest, uh, you know, ASEAN Rice Reserve, somewhere you need confidence that you're not only got one supply of food. And I don't say that has to be, uh, you know, autosufficiency, but I do think um, you are a better trade partner if you've got some cards in your hand and a country that relies on another country for its food is not in a great place for a trade discussion. Um, Robert, maybe I can ask you to come in and, and I think the other topic here is is labor force, right? Uh, so to the extent that perhaps domestic uh, food production has taken a hit because of greater reliance on trade, who are the winners and losers and, and what does it mean for some developing countries who who may feel like they they are overly reliant today on trade, also in terms of, of economic welfare of, of their citizens. Well, like any system, you know, um, may not be overly reliant on trade when the system is working, right? And if I could mention, uh, well, react a little bit to Sophia's comment, uh, a point I've tried to make is that WTO rules have a lot of uh, flexibilities Members don't always follow them, and maybe I didn't make this point very clearly, but their obligations have restricted the extent of the bad behavior that you might see. Um, so there is a debate at the WTO around export restrictions for food, um, and it puts a lot of pressure on those governments. And I would argue in many cases, those governments are not necessarily trying to keep food supplies home to feed hungry people. They're, what they're trying to do is reduce the costs of food, which um, can be a political, if food prices rise uh, and they've been heavily subsidized, uh, that can be politically very uncomfortable. So the system's not perfect, um, but when it does work, it works well. Now we put out a report last year on trade and economic resilience. And one of the things that we argue in that report 
is that you really want to have a diversified portfolio. It's not like an it's not unlike an investment portfolio, right? Um, but you want to be able to do that efficiently and effectively. And many countries seem to be arguing, well, the way we diversify our portfolio is by becoming self-reliant. And our argument there is that that's that's you know you're not really looking at your efficiency. Um, uh, versus risk trade-off very well, if, if that's how you're approaching it. Now, um, you know, very early in my career, I did work on the transition economies, uh, in particular Russia and Central and Eastern Europe. And at the time, U.S. policymakers very much believed we had about a 45 million metric ton uh, net exports to the region. And that was a huge market. And I had to come in and tell policymakers that that was going to change. Right, at least by my economic analysis, that not only were imports going to decrease, but they were going to become net exporters and compete with us. And that was a very, very unpopular message. And most of that message, by the way, was around uh, a decrease in disappearance or consumption, uh, along with improvements in yields and production. But you know, the policymakers are like, well, people are standing in line for food there. You know, they're going to keep buying food. We're going to keep selling it to them. You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about, right? And that's where economics can really give you some helpful insights um, around these kinds of changes. Um, one of the uh, comments that I've heard is, how can African countries um, change their diets back to foodstuffs that are more locally grown and not rely more so much on this Western diet that then relies on grain imports um, when historically they didn't consume grain. I think thinking about those kinds of policy environments help create perhaps that, um, uh, that risk reduction and that diversified portfolio. But trying to grow grain in replace of importing grains is probably not a very smart approach, right? If your natural conditions aren't um, aren't uh, favorable to that, so there are different ways to think about it. Uh, think, and um, on the margin, enough of those ideas can make a substantial difference. Um, I'll I'll stop there. I kind of wandered a bit, but uh, very interesting point. No, all, all really great reflections. And Antoine, you've done so much work on Africa. So, so I want to direct a couple of the questions uh, specific uh, to Africa to you. So one comes to us from Accra. Um, what measures can be put into place to curb the high rate of food security in Africa? And then related to the previous discussion, uh, an anonymous uh, questioner is asking, is trade the solution to food security in Africa? Uh, what about food sovereignty? And, and maybe we need a definition of food sovereignty. Is food sovereignty the same thing as uh, self-sufficiency or what do we understand that term to mean? Thank you, Charlotte. Um... So yes, I think that um, uh, in fact, in a, a bilateral chat, uh, David uh, told me that uh, he, he insisted uh, before my, my presentations about one point, which is um, Africa is very concerned with food insecurity, more and more maybe. And uh, if um, uh, the liberalization on, of trade doesn't deliver some, some results, some impact on, on, on food security in Africa, then the, the debate uh, may be lost. 
so, um, um, so the concept of food sovereignty, I'm, 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 I agree with you, is, is very, very um, uh, confusing. Um, uh, and, and what I understand is that um, uh, people want to have uh, the control by their governments of their access to food. Um, they they can decide. They do not want to uh, to depend on on um, um, world in institutions. And and I think this is very confusing because in fact WTO never uh, decided of of uh, the food policy of of one nation. Uh, so um, so I I think that it's a relabeling of of food self sufficiency. Uh, with some political correctness, honestly. So, um, uh, if I if I can say, uh, what are the measures that can curb the rise of food insecurity in Africa? Uh, I think that um, um, the problems is to uh, open uh, African economies, but at the same time to give their chance to African farmers, uh, because African farmers have a lot of of uh, problem. To be uh, to be competitive that do not depend on on their own behavior, but for example, the access to fertilizer is not good. The access to market is not good, and it doesn't give uh, uh, enough chances to African farmers. So I think that there is a, a, a national policy problem uh, in Africa, and at the same time, of course, uh, liberalizations of trade can uh, of course improve food security in Africa. But I'm, I'm not very optimistic. And the reason why is that there are many, many problems concerning liberalizations of trade in Africa, because it's not only a question of tariff, it's a question of non-tariff measure. It's a question of transportation costs that are very high. It is, it's a question of efficiency of custom procedures. Uh, um, and so um, I think that for the African Continental Free Trade Agreement to deliver some results in terms of impact on food security, there are many obstacles that uh, must be addressed by, by, by the government. So I think it's a, it's a long-term investment. I, I don't think that there will be uh, um, big results in, in the short term, unfortunately. Uh, coming from, from, of course, the AFCFTA. Great. Um, th thanks. Thanks very much for that. I think those are very good points. I, I think that is what we call maybe trade facilitation, right? It, what does Africa need in order to really be able to benefit from exactly uh, from from open trade? So also, I, I believe that was an important aspect at one point of the the the, the Doha development round that we did need some uh, additional work on on that very important topic. If, if I can ask, just add a, a very rapid point. Mm -hmm. uh, there is something to do about trade data. Uh, and, and the problem is that um, uh, international tr trade statistics missed a majority of uh, trade between African countries. Uh, for more than 100 uh, products that uh, we have been working on with Fuseini in ECOWAS, so in Western African countries, the, the data from Comtrade uh, were missing maybe 97% of trade of these products between 
these countries. So it's not it's not a small problem. It's a very big problem. And the problem is that one uh, justifications of the African continental free trade agreement was the fact that regional trade is not high enough. I'm not sure that regional trade is. Uh, is uh, not high enough uh, in Africa. Maybe it comes from uh, wrong statistics of trade. Yeah, no, the important addition there. Um, we, we have a couple of really large, again, big picture questions about the term really globalization. So I'm gonna come back to you, David Laborde, and then I'm gonna ask uh, Rob Voss to, to close off this seminar with some, some closing remarks. So we have a question from Gawain here from Washington who writes, of course, trade is core to globalization, but aren't there other key elements at play in globalization, such as intellectual property protection, consumer tastes, and other factors? How do we think about these, these non-trade issues, how they influence globalization? How do we model for that? And then related to that is a question, again, an anonymous question. Um, what can we do to be more proactive to combat food insecurity? And this person writes, globalization is already a fractured concept and we have to take that into account. So maybe uh, David, you can um, tackle these, these really large questions about shapes globalization, is globalization fractured? Is it, uh, uh, how, how do we see globalization continue? Um, and not just in terms of trade, but other factors as well. Yes, um, and, and yes, I will start to say that, you know, we, we talk about a lot about trade here and, and trade policy, but that was a small part of the story. And sometimes what I'm just worried is that people are so obsessed or fascinated about trade that they don't really talk about the rest. That is basically what's happened on the supply side and what's happened on the demand side. And, just to make the bridge with the previous discussion. Um, a lot of the challenges that uh, Africa is facing is the problem that African farmers doesn't have access to enough technology, enough finance, and therefore they cannot supply their markets properly. And fighting, you know, about what's happened at the border without really tackling what's happened within your country can be an easy way to not um, deal with the real issue. Both, I mean, for local government and also for the global community and the donor that need to invest to to support, you know, no production. So, just to say that trade is important, but trade at the end is just connecting producers and consumers around the world. Um, and we have a lot to fix things on the demand side, on the supply side, before starting to think that. Uh, trade is the end of the world. So uh, globalization, yes, I mean, trade and trading good is just one part of globalization. Um, trade in services also, I mean, impact typically uh, even the food system, but foreign direct investment and movement of capital, and that's not something new. Um, 19th century, you know, when uh, Russia and the US were starting to become big grain exporters and you have to build railroad, all the capital, all the money were coming from Europe. So, you know, investing in other countries to start um, helping them connecting to market as happened in the uh, two centuries ago. In the uh, 17th and 80s, Brazil has received investment from Japan, from other countries to build basically the poor house that they are today. And that requires financial capital, but that also requires sharing knowledge, ID. Um, 
And uh, last but not least, sometimes also you need to have people moving. So actually globalization has impacted all this aspect of food system. In advanced economy, a lot of the farm labor are actually migrants, sometimes seasonal migrants, sometimes long-term migrants that have been impacted by COVID. That's a way also to get kind of cheap food in some cases, but also cheap fruits and vegetables. And we want people to consume more fruit and vegetables. So we want also to maintain the price of fruit and vegetable uh, at a low cost. But the question is, it's a labor intensive industry. So how you get this labor? So yes, all these dimensions of globalization are relevant and are challenged uh, currently for different uh, uh, reasons. But once again, that's not new. I mean, the world has seen this different wave, of course, with different degree. But I really think that the aspect regarding, you know, knowledge, ID, and at one point, you know, what is going to be just privately owned and stay within corporation, and what is about having a public good to make sure that everyone has access to the new technology and to the technology that we need to tackle climate change are the big issue. And I mean, the WTO has tackled this issue, you know, for uh, drugs and the health sectors. We are going to have the same type of debate, um, and we already have it, I think, uh, for, for the food security. So I can go on and on, but just to say, yes, these different aspects of globalization are important. They all impact. WTO, for example, covered just some of them. Um, and if we have two minutes, I will be more than happy, maybe to Sophia, to react on the food sovereignty, because I will just conclude on that. I think it can mean different things for different people. And honestly, if the thing is, we want just that all collectivities know what we have on the plate, where it comes from, where it has been produced, and, and that we keep control on this essential part of our life. I mean, everyone has to eat several times a day for himself, for herself, for our family. Um, and so it's not like, you know, a cell phone, you know, I mean, bread and cell phone have structurally different things. And I mean, it's normal that we want to understand it and to control it to some extent. Now, the question is, who is controlling for who? Uh, we don't want just a few corporations to control the food system, but I don't want also uh, opaque government to control the food system. And that's a kind of issue we are dealing with. And sometimes also it's used in a weird way. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Europe where the Europeans were saying, we need to gain again food sovereignty of Europe food system. I mean, you know, Europeans are making the laws about what they eat. And actually, in some cases, they often shape the global food market about their own legislation. Europeans produce most of the food they, they, they eat. So you see, starting to see basically a, con a region that doesn't have big food insecurity problem, doesn't really have a food sovereignty problem and say, we don't have food sovereignty anymore and we need to change that. And I tell you, many countries in the world have many more problems. So stopping here and if we can have two minutes for Sofia, I think that will be great. Go ahead, Sofia. <laughs> I'm, I'm apologetic, Rob. You're, I, I hope I'm not. I, I only would say I think David is right. It's defined differently by different people. I think food sovereignty came out because a lot of farmers organizations felt that they had had a democratic fight for their policy and then trade policy overrode it. So I think there was a sense at the outset of, yes, we want more domestic control. I think very few um, you know, uh, theoretical definitions of food sovereignty say it's, it's food self-sufficiency. I think that's a red herring. So just encourage you to look past that to try to understand where else people are trying to have the sense that I cannot trade with you if I'm not in some way more equal. And food is a very difficult thing to depend on, like energy. We're very comfortable with having an energy autonomy. 
I think I think food I think economists could think a little bit more broadly about that. Okay, thanks. Um, well, let me thank uh, uh, Antoine and, and, and David and our, our three very distinguished panelists and Yo for, for all of their remarks. Um, Rob Voss, who is the Director of the Markets, Trade and Institutions Division of IFRI um, and who has also spent uh, a long time working with Antoine, has now the the, the, the great role of closing us off and, and providing some remarks at the end of this really very fascinating discussion. Over to you, Rob. Uh, no, thank you very much, uh, Charlotte, and also thanks uh, to all the panelists and in particular to Antoine for all his contributions to, to IFPRI. Um, I've benefited from uh, the work of Antoine and the team, but uh, from, for the last five years. But I knew of the work uh, way be before that, and uh, it was been very uh, inspirational and very useful for uh, many of the analysis. I think uh, what we discussed today was a fantastic discussion. I won't try to even uh, summarize uh, even part of it, uh, but rather just a few uh, broad reflections and then kind of coming back to Antoine's uh, contributions. Uh, first, the, the central topic of today, the, the, the relationship between global uh, food trade or agriculture trade and food security could not be more relevant in today's context uh, with the current crisis uh, and the discussions which we also had, how trade uh, has influenced food security, but also the debates around food self-sufficiency versus security are back uh, center stage. Um, also been um, part of uh, recent uh, G20 discussions of agricultural ministers where this topic was also center. And the, the good news is that uh, all the agricultural ministers of the G20, the biggest economies of the world, uh, do emphasize the importance of, of trade uh, as part of uh, food security solutions, but also uh, for uh, addressing climate change. So that's the rhetoric, but then when it comes to the practice, of course, we see different things and we've seen export restriction uh, flaring up uh, with uh, after, shortly after the lockdowns of COVID uh, with the Ukraine crisis um, uh, and likewise, uh, how to follow through on uh, making um, trade work for addressing climate change uh, is still a long way to go, particularly when it comes to actual practical policy making. Uh, but that said, I think much of your work gives us the groundwork that uh, helps us address and understand better these problems. Um, also, that they're complex, and you hinted at some of the cells. So the discourse is heavily confusing. Uh, people cry when food prices are up. People cry when food prices go down or if considered to be too, too low. Uh, and then uh, I think that's the role of economists that has been highlighted in this discussion to make clear um, uh, yeah, how those links come about and how to understand when maybe high food prices uh, are a problem and when uh, maybe they're not. Uh, but particularly um, understanding the functioning of markets uh, containing volatility, which is high in agricultural commodity markets, uh, is an important topic. Um, I would like to emphasize, I think, your approach, um, Antoine, which you've brought um, yeah, to IFPRI and uh, established IFPRI, and that we will continue. And several of you, of the speakers, uh, starting from 
David and all the panelists have, uh, have emphasized that, and also you've emphasized in your own uh, reflections, that's uh, integrating good data, improving the data, good theory, improving the theory, um, good models, improving the models, understanding political economy and bringing them into the models and capacity build, building and development. I think those uh, combination of things is uniquely defines your work and your contributions to, uh, to the overall debate and what you've done uh, to, uh, for, for IFPRI's uh, work is, is outstanding. I would like particularly also to uh, stress um, the work you've done to, to bring together and help bring together African researchers through AgroDev and actually the Mirage model uh, that uh, you helped uh, establish. Uh, we renamed it into MiragroDev to, to reflect on that's not just a global model thought through by um, uh, uh, researchers from the global north, but actually it's, it's a global model also understood by researchers from the global south and you've brought that and you also not just brought that to african researchers but also to ifpri uh, itself so without making uh, the story much longer than needed we'll, we'll hopefully can record this debate and pick up from the research questions but uh, as uh, tom hurtle was saying um, we could be feel very sad about your departure uh, but I think uh, you've le you're leaving a strong capacity uh, uh, at IFPRI to continue this work. It's helped um, the work uh, that we've done in understanding the present crisis and uh, uh, we'll also continue doing it to understand the future crisis and how to uh, respond to that. But also some of the work uh, that we're taking forward with MidagroDEP is to rethink agriculture support measures, be it the trade measures, be the subsidies that are being provided, how they can be repurposed, but think them through um, uh, using uh, your approaches uh, for um, understanding how they um, impact on multiple objectives, not just food security, sustainability, uh, inclusiveness, uh, poverty reduction, and so on, and then make them clear to policymakers how to understand the trade-offs and how to understand the political economy questions that may emerge around them. So we'll build on that. Um, we won't uh, say full goodbye. And so we, um, we hope to continue our collaboration uh, to start to make you a non-resident senior research fellow of IFRI. So we thank you very much for all your contributions. And I thank uh, everybody on this panel for very good discussion uh, and raising issues that uh, we will take forward in our further work at IFPRI. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Rob. Uh, many thanks again to the panel. Au revoir, Antoine, that's better than goodbye. And, and I just want to point out that we have an IFPRI, another IFPRI um, policy seminar coming up. We, together with Global Health 5050 and UN Women, we have an official um, Burlog Dialogue side event on October 18th, tracking and promoting progress on gender equality. Um, IFPRI is also involved in two CGIR side events at the Burlog Dialogue. One of them will be on the 19th with a look at the Ukraine crisis and the research agenda of the CGIR to, that is relevant to, to this crisis as well as future crises. 
And then there's another um, CGIR event um, on the 20th, which will look at the Egyptian COP27 presidency priorities. And again, at the CGIR research portfolio with a focus on climate change, as well as the CGIR's uh, desired outcomes for COP27. So please do take a look at the IFPRI website so you get the details on all three of those Burlog uh, side events. Wishing all of you uh, a, a great rest of your day or evening, wherever you may be, and we hope to see you soon.